All right. Hello, everybody. We have a special episode of Thinking Logically for you today. We are joined by our first guest on the podcast. He is a Beaver County native, graduate of Quigley High School. His name is Will Lucas, local basketball coach now and former Naval Intelligence Officer. And Will was embedded with the Navy SEALs during five different tours in Iraq. From 2007 to 2016, Will has an interesting story, and we are going to get into a lot of things related to the Iraq War and his time over there. Will, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Mark. Thanks for having me. And we are also joined by Dr. Corsi. So, Will, uh, first question, just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into becoming a Naval Intelligence Officer. Sure. So, uh, joined the Navy. 1997, uh, as you said, right after I graduated from Quigley and uh, got into the intelligence community uh, right after boot camp. Uh, first duty station was in Puerto Rico, just kind of hanging out, being young, joining, uh, actually just kind of seeing, you know, trying to figure out my place in the Navy, figured out what I was going to do, stuff like that. Uh, was there for a short amount of time, ended up getting uh, transferred over to Hawaii. And then uh, September 11th happened. So I figured uh, I got to up my game a little bit, uh, did some research, figured out uh, what type of special programs there were and a opportunity to join NSW came about. They didn't really have organic, um, an organic capability uh, that I had uh, embedded in the, in the teams. So uh, basically uh, tried out for that, uh, was successful, uh, moved to uh, San Diego and was there for 11 years. Interesting. So when you first got deployed to Iraq, it was 2007, the Iraq war, they basically started just a couple years prior to that. What was, the, what was your mindset going into your, your first appointment? Thinking about, Hey, you know, I'm going into probably the most dangerous place in the world. Sure. Uh, my first, uh, the first time I went, I uh, was uh, with team seven and uh, we were out West all the way in the Ambar province out in Ramadi. And uh, you know, if anyone that's been there or, or, or knows anything about it, it's a, it's a pretty tough place. But uh, honestly, I, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. Like I said, I was, you know, borderline computer nerd, intelligence nerd, uh, you know, heard all about it, uh, you know, read about it, obviously got, a, uh, got a lot of feedback from other people that have been there. But I, I didn't know what to expect. I just kind of uh, went in with a with an open mind. Um, but it was certainly, a, you know, an eye-opening experience. Uh, you take a lot of things for granted coming from, you know, this part of the world and going to that part of the world. Uh, it was it was it was humbling. It was challenging. Uh, it was just I, I kind of was a, like a fish out of water to, to, to start out with to, to begin with. Sure. And when you say Team 7, you're referring to SEAL Team 7, correct? correct? Correct. And for our listeners, talk about how the SEAL teams are structured. Now, we had this conversation privately, you and I, but talk about how the SEAL teams are structured, East and West Coast, how many are in each SEAL team, and things like that. Sure. So basically, um, John F. Kennedy uh, created the, the, the teams back in the 60s and figured out, I guess, you know, the best way to do it was to kind of split them up and put them on both coasts. So uh, it's, it's really easy. The, uh, the, how, how we learned where the even number teams are on the East Coast, uh, they're out of Virginia, and then the odd number teams 
are out in San Diego on the West Coast. Uh, how many people are in them, you know, kind of vary and all that kind of stuff. But um, that's basically how they're, you know, set up organically. Right. And so as a naval intelligence officer, you went over to Iraq and you were embedded with a group of SEALs Correct. that lived in parts of Iraq, Baghdad, as you said, Ramadi. What was like a typical day like when you were over there during your active deployment? Uh, you know, everyone's day is kind of different. Uh, there, there's, you know, obviously there's the, there's the team guys, there's supply guys, there's the CPs, you know, a, a whole bunch of people get attached to, you know, to a squadron they go over my day, uh, with what I did was basically reversed from, uh, you know, what we would call a normal day. Uh, we do a lot of stuff when the sun goes down. So our day would basically be roughly from, you know, six at night to six in the morning, uh, wake up you know, kind of in the, in the, you know, in the heat of the day, almost like five or six in the, you know, in the afternoon, get our day going. It was basically be like, like any other day, just a time, just a time swap. So uh, start out with a meeting, figuring out what we're going to do that night, figuring out if it's going to be a slow night or a busy night uh, and kind of just go from there. Some nights were extremely busy. Other nights were extremely slow. So it's, it just, every day was kind of a, a different uh, experience. So your role though, during these, your patrols you were basically you weren't collecting the intelligence you were basically disseminating it and, and breaking it down to let the seals know hey this is what's going on, on uh, this mission. yeah a little bit of both i mean sometimes uh, depending on what uh the mission uh called for uh dictated what i you know what my uh, roles and responsibilities were um sometimes we were gathering sometimes we were disseminating sometimes we were just observing it, it kind of uh you know, every time, no matter where, or, uh, different places we were called for different things. So uh, I, you know, I could have been doing a variety of, of things on every, on any given uh, night. It's interesting. Uh, talk about the buildup to your deployment. Like what kind of training went into, you did five tours. Talk about the, the training that in the buildup that went into each deployment. Sure. So a, uh, you know, deployment cycle would be roughly around, you know, I'd say give around, 18 to 24 months with uh, about a year, maybe a little bit more um, training prior to the actual deployment, then your actual deployment time, then a little bit of uh, time on the back end. But the, as far as the, uh, the training on the, on the, uh, on the, on the first half goes, you know, it, it, it once again, it kind of depends on, on what your role was. Uh, mine specifically was like being in the intelligence community. I spent a lot of time traveling around doing, doing different training, um, evolutions to try to you know uh, perfect my craft and whether or not that was commercial vendor training whether or not was that was a, a training at another uh, military facility or a government facility uh it kind of depended uh medical training uh weapons training communications training you have to uh even though we weren't you know i wasn't a team guy per se uh we still had to learn how to do basic things with them uh move shoot communicate uh, like I said, uh, uh, medical in case something went wrong, uh, basic communications. So uh, we kind of did that for that first year, kind of individually, I don't want to say. But then we came together uh, basically right before we deployed and then all did uh, like basically like one big final training evolution all together. Everybody that was uh, attached to the squadron did it, completed it to the uh, training cadre's uh, satisfactions and then all went overseas and uh, performed our mission. Wow. Sounds definitely like an intense training period where 
you know, I feel like they just have to mentally get you prepared more than anything to go into, into combat like that. Sure. That, yeah. That pretty much I mean, accurate? yeah. I mean, you know, obviously the, the more you do it, I think the more you get accustomed to, to the, to the battle rhythm is what we call it. Like the first time you're a new guy, you really don't know anything. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know how you're doing it. Um, and then you learn, you learn from other people, you learn off experience. There's no, you know, better trainer than experience itself. We used to say that all the time. So, uh, you mess some, you know, you mess something up, hopefully you learn from it. Don't do it again. Right. Can you talk about any situations that you found yourself in that were, you know, extremely dangerous where you thought, you know, Hey, this is, you know, not going the way we want it to or anything like that. Uh, believe it or not, not much really went the way that we thought it was going to. <laughs> it's just kind of one of those things that you kind of plan for the best, hope for the, or, uh, hope for the best plan for the worst type thing. Um, you know, there were a lot of times that, uh, were certainly hairy, uh, not so many as you would think. I mean, you know, being attached to, you know, the world's best, uh, you know, group of guys to do a specific thing, um, a lot goes into basically everything we did. So yeah, there were some hairy things. I mean, you know, kind of stuff that you would just imagine, you know, I, I was fortunate to never really get into a, you know, a massive firefight or, or, or anything like that. Like I said, I was in the intelligence, uh, you know, realm, you kind of, they kind of keep you away from that because I would have been just in the way, you know, type deal. So um, they did a good job of, of, of keeping me, you know, kind of, kind of in the rear with that stuff. Right. And, and I don't know if you could talk about this, but you were basically embedded with the seals and you lived with a family in Iraq. Uh, there were a few times of that. I wouldn't say necessarily lived with them, but de def definitely they were like, we'll call it like a liaison where if you uh, were doing something, you know, that you needed to be say off the base for, uh, there were sponsors for lack of a better term that could, uh, could, uh, you know, shelter us you know kind of keep us hidden uh yes the, you know you know that did uh the, the those those occasions that you know did did happen well let right. me jump in here and ask sure. uh, so how exactly do you identify because iraq is it, you not an easy enemy to identify how would you identify who was the enemy like a terrorist versus who was friendly so the real real short generic answer to that is it's very challenging unless somebody has a weapon. If, if somebody had a weapon of any kind, uh, that was usually the first indication to say, okay. Um, other than that, it was extremely challenging, you know, depending on what parts of the country you were uh, in, depending on, you know, like, like I said, uh, for example, like the, when I was way out West in Ramadi, that's, you know, a different type of tribal region. That's a, a certain type of, uh, of uh, ethnicity that they have out there. They were, they were pretty much, you know, the vast majority of people did not enjoy our presence there. When you got closer to, you know, Baghdad or even down in Basra where I were, you know, the, the, the climate changed a little bit. So the, I'm doing air quotes here, like the bad guys uh, would be more isolated. They wouldn't be as blended in uh, to the community as they were because the community didn't like them either. And they just like anybody else, any uh, bad person in your local community, like they kind of, you know, like get isolated from themselves. Okay. All right. Um, also, I know Joe uh, has some questions uh, now for you as well. Go ahead, Joe. Okay, so I'm going to ask about um, 
they're called key leader engagements, KLEs you probably refer to them as. I just want to know a little bit about what they are, their use and success as a non-lethal way of countering the insurgents and the terrorist organizations there. Sure. KLE is exactly what you said. Uh, basically means when we would say a partner force or, you know, a coalition force wanted to meet with local people. Usually uh, that could be like super secretive. That could have been super wide in the open, all just depending on who it, were, who it was, who you're meeting with, uh, what the purpose was. I could give you an example. I remember one of my first times uh, in Ramadi, uh, there was a women's KLE where we had uh, the U.S. service women uh, were trained to do certain things. And they would talk to the local women uh, in Iraq, in, in Ramadi, which was you know, anyone that knows anything about the culture over there, you know, it's it's much different than over here with men and women. And uh, so our women were basically talking to their women and, you know, gathering intelligence, talking, just seeing a local thing, you know, from a woman to woman perspective, because we thought, uh, you know, maybe they would open up to, uh, you know, to other women more so than, you know, to talking to a to a man. So uh, that's just a small example of uh, one of those things. But they're 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 very valuable. I would um, you know, a lot of times people don't want to use a form of communications or whatever. So it's just a face to face sit down uh, would be, would be the best way. You know, it's just like, just like with us, we would learn more about each other if we were sitting down face to face on the other side of a table than you would on the phone or FaceTime or whatever. Okay. All right. Um, also, I'm going to ask about the surge. Uh, some people refer to it as John McCain's surge or David Petraeus surge. Um, if you could explain to our listeners what exactly the surge was and in your opinion, if it did really work, because I've heard rumors that all it did was displace more Iraqis and some argued that the decrease in violence that resulted may have just been from some areas being overrun by, I don't know if it's Shias or Sunnis. Yeah, I mean, the surge, it was, <laughs> you know, I don't remember what exact year, you know, it occurred, but it was a basically just a, you know, a, a, a huge uptick in, in numbers. Um, and it did depend on where you were. Uh, out west, it's mostly Shiite, and during the cities and in the major, um, more metro areas, that's where the you know mainly where the Shias were. So it does kind of depend on you know. I guess everyone could look at it differently depending on what side of the fence you're on. Um, I, I I think it, you know an argument can be made both ways. Was it effective? Was it you know wasn't it? Uh, it was in my opinion. I think that was one of the most uh, successful times of the. Uh, of the campaign for me personally, that's when I think, uh, we, we got the, uh, the best work in, we just had the best, you know, we had more resources. We had more, uh, we had better ways to combat the enemy. And uh, it was more of a, like a full core press to use a basketball analogy, all, all hands on deck. That doesn't mean that, that other times, uh, those things weren't being used, but, uh, it seemed like the whole focus of the whole campaign, uh, really, really, uh, was involved with that effort. Okay, well, good. Like I said, you were there. You were there. You have firsthand experience. If 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 you, in your opinion, thought it worked, then I'm with you, buddy. Um, Mark, do you have any questions? No, no. I think I asked pretty much everything I wanted to our listeners to find out from from Will. Okay, I have one more about. Um, so people, a lot of people listening might not understand that the Iraq War actually, you like you said, it was a lot of different phases, but it was really two main phases. There was the conventional war that lasted for a few weeks, maybe two months. And then there was that second much longer phase that lasted for 20 years. Can you explain to our viewers a little bit, the difference in like the strategy, because the first was a conventional war where we knew what enemy was, how 
did that differ from when you were there? So I think, you know, you, you know, right after September 11th, um, you know, it was more of a, you know, I, I, you know, like a government on government type of campaign. You know, I mean, they had, you know, obviously they still had remains of the Republican Guard. They still had all of Saddam's guys. You know, they had all that kind of stuff. So it was a more conventional us versus them type thing. When they basically quit, retreated, defeated, however you want to look at it, um, it turned into more of the, you know, the actual insurgency things uh, with more types of terrorist groups, uh, Al Qaeda, obviously, and then moving on to ISIS later in that. But um, that was basically, you know, as, as we called it, almost gang warfare. You know, we uh, we knew about, you know, Al Qaeda and, and, and what they were and how they operated and everything. But we didn't know necessarily how they operated day to day, you know, on the ground, um, moving, you know, moving in and out of the country, moving in and out of the region, uh, you know, traveling to other other locations to to do what they were up to. So, you know, every day, you know, we were learning, like I said, kind of earlier, like on the fly, like what the campaign looked like in 2000, say four was vastly different than what, uh, how it ended, you know, in, in 16, uh, 17. So at first much more conventional, much more, you know, army based, uh, uh, engagements. And then after that, after all the, you know, findings and, and lack thereof, I should say, of certain things, uh, you know, the, the narrative kind of changed. Uh, we shifted focus, uh, I think, a little bit more towards, um, like I said, the actual terrorist organizations and uh, went to work on them. Okay, and these terrorist organizations, um, obviously there's numerous ones, I'm sure. Each one has cells within cells. Do they coordinate together or is it like every terrorist from themselves a little bit over there? Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. Uh, it, it, it varies. I mean, the vast majority of, I mean, they're all, they're all linked basically by their basic, uh, ideology, right? It, it, it's, it's, they all have one common goal and that was to defeat, you know, what they perceived as their enemy, which was coalition forces. So they all had the same, say moral background, moral structure. Now, within that they did do different things they did have different tactics they did use different procedures they would do different things depending on where you were like per se even a group of the same uh a, a same organization you know aqi was different than aqap that's Al iraq uh, arabian peninsula and uh and al-qaeda iraq um they you know they, they 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 did do different things so if you were in afghanistan fighting iraq uh al-qaeda that could be completely different than fighting, you know, uh, Al Qaeda in Southern Iraq. Okay. All right. Um, also I have, and this is going to be a little bit off topic, but I have to ask it, then I'll turn it back over to Mark. Um, so a little history here on October 16th, 2002, Iraq held what was the second presidential election under Saddam Hussein. Now, according to official statistics, voter turnout was hundred percent with every single Iraqi that was registered to vote nearly 12 million people voting yes in a referendum to have Saddam serve another seven-year term. Um, we used to always laugh at Iraqi elections and how just clearly crooked they probably were. In our country, are, are we getting that way where we, we don't have free and fair elections and we don't get answers after our election? You've seen in Pennsylvania, we, we only have, we don't have an answer. Arizona, do you see any similarities? Sure. Uh, right off the bat, I think we could both agree that the, uh, you know, the, the media reporting that they were 100 uh, percent 
that that everybody over there voted obviously is incorrect and obviously i think there's a lot of uh uh inaccuracies reported on our own election ourselves so i don't know how necessarily they're there they would be related but i could certainly uh, uh, see the similarity of both of them not being covered um you know maybe fairly or uh, equally as far as the media goes i think uh you know the media certainly ran uh a certain way with the coverage of these uh elections basically anywhere they are in the world i mean i think you know the media kind of does their uh does their own thing and i think we could all you know agree with that no matter what side of the uh, the fence you're on so depending on who you listen to, it depends on, you know, what information you're going to get. Thank you. Um, like I said, in America, you think we have transparency. In Iraq, you don't think transparency. In America, we're not getting the transparency we deserve. So, but Mark, go ahead. I'll let you take it away. Yeah, as we wrap up, you know, you, you, you did more tours of duty than just Iraq. Uh, talk about maybe some of the differences between your tours of duty in Iraq as opposed to some of the other places that you or in other parts of the world. Sure. I mean, there's no real place like the Mideast for anyone that's been there for a variety of reasons, let alone being boots on the ground, uh, you know, in Iraq. So I was fortunate to be able to travel to other parts of, say, Southeast Asia. Obviously, landscape's different. Obviously, it's not a war zone. Obviously, uh, you know, morale and, and quality of life is a lot higher. But, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the intelligence community and in the, in the military as a whole, you know, I mean, people have very different experiences uh, no matter where you uh, go, like what your job is, uh, where you're uh, stationed, you know, like, so you and I could both be in the Navy for say four years and I could love it because I did this and you could hate it because you did that. So it was just a, uh, it's, it, they kind of, I think they kind of, you know, treated us well with, you know, a lot of Mideast deployments kind of, I don't want to say deserve, but they kind of, you know, threw us a bone and sent us to a few tro- uh, tropical locations, which, uh, you know, we're able to, uh, have us, you know, reset, kind of regroup. Um, just, I don't want to say, you know, be complacent or take it easy or whatever, but obviously that, that type of deployment is way less uh, stressful as uh, a, a combat one in the Mideast. In the Mideast. Right. And, and what, were, what are some of those places that you went to in Southeast Asia? So there's a, uh, we use a, for lack of a better term, a forward operating base. It's in Guam. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a big naval base there. And we kind of use that, as a say outpost to travel to different countries uh all around uh we did uh uh basically a lot of like training exercises with uh the thais uh with indonesians um koreans all that kind of stuff so it's it's easier to take all your stuff and basically deploy out of guam than it is out of san diego so you kind of go to guam hang out there get attached to a different country to get it uh, attached to a different uh uh, uh, military unit out there and then kind of train with them, uh, teach them, they teach us. Maybe there's some intelligence gathering at one of those uh, training evolutions, maybe not, but uh, that was kind of the purpose for that. Right. So now you're, you're currently uh, retired from the military. You're an assistant basketball coach at Lincoln Park uh, and you spent some time in the NBA. Was it difficult to integrate back into we'll say American society after your final tour of duty in 2016? Uh, I don't No, not really. I mean, yes and no. I I wouldn't be uh, truthful if I said, you know, no, hundred percent. It is challenging, you know, uh, uh, to to get off the battlefield with a very alpha group, 
you know, we always used to say lions amongst lions. Um, and then to go home to, you know, family, wife, kids, you know, all that kind of stuff in a very short amount of time is, uh, can be challenging. And it, and it was to some degree, uh, to know that, you know, the op tempo obviously being, uh, in the mid East and being in Southern California, you probably can't get two more opposite, uh, opposite ends of the spectrum there. So it is, it is challenging to shut it off. Uh, like right away, it does take time integrate back with your family who hasn't seen you in months uh, for you to integrate back with them because, you know, maybe uh, all you want to do is sleep and they haven't seen you for a few months. You know, so it's uh, that part could be, you know, could be challenging, but, but no, I, I, I think they did a, they meaning NSW did a good job of uh, getting us um, talk to people doctors and such you know if you're exposed to certain things or if you want to if you want to uh talk to somebody about something that you experienced or whatever uh all those resources resources are available to you so i think that's a that's something that nsw does very well that uh maybe uh, other organizations don't to uh, kind of get you prepared to uh uh to get back into uh normal normal life interesting well, that's all the time we have today. So, uh, Will, we want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for your service. We yes, thank you for your time. service, Will. Thanks. And you're always welcome back. Recurring guest, Will Lucas. Uh, again, Will, thank you. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks thank for you. having me. All right. Bye-bye.